Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we're going to be talking about the deadly sin of sloth. Now, just as a quick update, some of you may have wondered where the podcast has been for the past two weeks, and we just wanted to let you know everything's good. Aaron just had an opportunity to travel and uh, get some time off, which was good and much needed. So as we get into, and he wasn't slothful, just to be clear, as we start this topic of slothfulness. (laughs) But today we want to discuss the causes of laziness as one thing. We also want to discuss God's call to work as unto the Lord. And then finally, we want to tie them back to God's creation mandates for all of humanity. So if you've ever found yourself occasionally struggling with laziness or slothfulness, or maybe the idea of retiring with no plan to continue working, or maybe you see yourself struggling to see the redemptive value in your work, then we hope this episode will be just what you need. So Aaron, why this topic? Why now? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, we had a good time away visiting some uh, friends and family members uh, in the UK, which is good, and it's good to be back. And uh, of course, many of the listeners probably know that I'm a much older man now. Yes. Officially entered into my 50s this week. (laughs) So if you... um, you know, if I sound a little older, more wise, more mature, somewhat confused, they know why. <laughs> All the younger people are like, man, he's old. All the older people are like, man, he's young. <laughs> exactly. It's all relative in a certain level. I think there's uh, several reasons why this topic came to my mind. I, I would say in general, when I compare some of the behavior of people in our society compared to maybe what I was used to growing up. I do see a bit of a drop in work ethic. There's discussions in the broader culture about four-day work weeks. I understand that. I think it's one of the Norwegian countries, Scandinavian countries, that has gone to a four-day work week. Uh, we, we hear demands from union workers to work from home. Now, I'm not opposed to someone working from home. There could be some value to that, but like demanding that your employer lets you Work from home seems a little odd, kind of the cart before the horse where the employee is demanding certain unnecessary concessions from their employers. And then I am I know several uh, people that have businesses and they're telling me it's very difficult to find people in their own countries who are willing to work and work hard. Many of them have to rely upon uh, immigrants and offshore workers in order to run their companies. And that that's a bit of a concern for me, especially when there's still folks in our culture that are on EI that are supposedly looking for work. There are people who are homeless that if they found a job would solve their problem. So I, I'm seeing some of that. I was also impacted on my trip to England there last week. We had the opportunity to visit my... Um, the the city that my my grandmother my maternal grandmother grew up in and it was it was interesting so the backstory is my my great grandfather on my mom's side was a canadian soldier in world war 1 and during a visit to england during world war 1 he met his wife in sheffield england in the north of england 
brought her back after World War I as a war bride. They had uh, five or six kids, of which my grandfather was one. Unfortunately, my, when my grandfather came back, he was still struggling from the after effects of having been gassed on the battlefield, and he he died at the young age of uh, thirty eight or thirty nine, mm. and left you know left my grandmother with all these children. So my grandfather grew up, and he was a soldier in World War II. And in World War II, he had a bit of a leave, and he shot up to Sheffield to visit his cousins, right? So he had cousins there because his mom was born in Sheffield and met my grandmother. So my grandmother was married to his first cousin. So they met, and short story is they married. And when my grandmother was 19, she got on a boat and set sail for the U.S., landed in Halifax, and found her way to Ontario. And uh, spent the rest of her life in Canada until she died in, in 2019. So I, I remember my grandma speaking very fondly of Sheffield. So when I went to England, I'm like, well, I want to visit Sheffield. So I looked up some of my mom's cousins. We visited with four of her cousins, which would be like my first cousins once removed. And I'd ask them questions, you know, like where did grandma grow up? So they took me to the street she grew up on. And it was a tiny, they were just tiny little terrace houses. The, the square footage of these things were something like, maybe like 120 square feet per floor, two floors. So like a total of maybe 250 square feet. They rented all their lives. They worked um, in the steel mills in Sheffield. You know, one one of my um, cousin's fathers, he basically would pick up a piece of metal, put it on, a, I think, an anvil, and someone would strike it with a, with a hammer. That, that's what he did for like whatever, 30, 40 years. So growing up in tiny little houses where you had to go out the front door, down the street, through the alley, up the back to use the outhouse, you did not have a proper kitchen. You worked very difficult jobs. My great-grandmother worked in what was called the big house down the street for the man that sort of owned the neighborhood, um, washing his floors. You know, she snagged her finger on a nail. It got infected. She had to have her, her finger removed. So the point is, is... These people lived, comparative to our lives, very difficult lives. You know, never never had the opportunity to own property. Um, worked on their hands and their knees. Worked in the steel mills. Lived in these tiny little houses. But I never heard my grandmother complain about any of that. And, you know, here we are in a culture where we have so much and people just never seem to have enough. Like they're always whining and complaining about even government workers. You know, I'm not opposed to people working for the government, but government workers generally get paid fairly well, but it just never seems to be enough. And then you have socialist parties in our country constantly demanding more and more and more as if somehow, you know, it's a human right now to only work four days a week, or it's a human right to, to work from home, or it's a human right to earn a hundred grand a year, whatever it might be. So I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the the rise of slothfulness and laziness and the sense of entitlement in our culture. I also hear people sometimes admitting to struggling with laziness, not being motivated to 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 work. Um, there's broader discussions taking place in our circles of influence about God's laws and how God's laws apply to the modern context. And we know in Genesis that were commanded to work six days and rest on the seventh. Well, how many people actually work six days anymore, much less five days, and then rest on the seventh? 
And then, of course, I was talking to one of my son-in-laws, and you know, he mentioned something about people's work ethic. And I said, you know, one of the problems is is that heavy taxation also de-incentivizes people from working. So when you when you go to work and you work by the sweat of your brow, and fifty percent of your income between income tax and provincial taxes and federal taxes and resale of car taxes ends up going to the government. You can understand why some people are like, you know what? And it's not right to think this way, but I'm just going to live off the system. I'm going to live off unemployment income or I'm going to live off social assistance. It's just not worth it. So there's a convergence of issues in society and culture and in the church and in the mindset of many Western peoples that I think needs to be corrected and informed by a biblical theology of work. So that's why I thought we could do this podcast together. That's good. And I know you're a hard worker, so this isn't directed to you. (laughs) Okay, excellent. (laughs) Well, I'm sure it'll be enjoyable. Um, Early monastic communities, Christian communities, considered slothfulness one of the seven deadly sins, or laziness rather. Now, the Bible has a ton of sins that are listed, so why did they choose slothfulness or laziness to be one of the seven deadly sins? Yeah, it's a great question because— I mean, we have murder, we have theft, we have lying, all these other sins, blasphemy. So the the question is, why these seven sins? Why are they in a list called the seven deadly sins? Some some people created a list of nine sins, but we often hear of the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. And these developed in the monastic communities in the second, third, fourth centuries. Basically, monastic communities were communities of monks or aesthetics who lived apart from society and thought spiritual thoughts and committed themselves to simplicity. And the seven deadly sins that uh, commonly form this list include pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. Now, if you think about those sins, there's a subtle difference between those sins and, for example, murder, where you're taking someone's life, or theft where you're lying or where you're taking someone's possessions or lying where you are uh, telling a falsehood. Those sins are the antitheses of truth and righteousness. But the seven deadly sins, the reason why they're deadly is because they have a sort of a righteous counterpart. They can easily they can easily show up in someone's life and be, excused because they're not as obvious. They're not as, as um, I guess in a sense, as obviously opposed to righteousness as, for example, pride, which is a, an internal, easier to hide, more subtle type mm-hmm. of sin. And so if, if you think of pride, the counterpart to pride, which people can conflate is we are we 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 should be thankful for our our own lives for example and we should protect our own lives from harm as part of a stewardship of the body mind and soul we we should have a healthy value of our worth a healthy mindset of our worth and value in christ and 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 that's a good thing we would encourage for example a, a young child to have a healthy understanding of their identity in Christ. Pride is a sin, but it it's not as uh 
the the distance between the good and the bad may not be as obvious on the surface. People can easily be prideful and think, well, it's not pride. I just have a healthy sense of value. I have a healthy understanding of my identity and my worth. The same with greed. So we're told on one hand in the Bible, he who gathers money little by little sees it grow. A person can gather money and say, hey, I'm gathering money little by little. That's what the Proverbs teach. You're like, yeah, but is it possible that maybe you're a little bit greedy, that you're you're hoarding, that you're doing it for, for the wrong reasons? So you see how there's a subtle difference. Wrath is one of the seven deadly sins, and, and the counterpart to that would be righteous anger. So a person could be wrathful but excuse it as, well, I'm, it's righteous anger. Envy. Covetousness, in other words, um, we're we're not dualists, so we have an appreciation for the physical world, the material world around us, and a person can easily allow envy or covetousness to sneak into their lives and excuse it as, no, I just have an appreciation for my material possessions or your material possessions. Um, Lust, sex, and love in a heterosexual marital covenant are championed by God. They're God's creational design. Lust is a, a twisting of that, and it can, a person can conflate the two. Gluttony, we're told to you know eat and drink as unto the Lord, but wh- where do we draw the line? Like how many calories are too much? Mm-hmm. And then we come to sloth. People say, well, I just, I just like keeping the Sabbath, you know, seven days a week. <laughs> it's like, well- It's a year of jubilee. <laughs> yeah, see, <laughs> so- but sloth, so you see what I'm saying? Like these these sins, the seven deadly sins are deadly because they can easily, more easily be excused away than murder, theft, and lying can be or blasphemy. And it's important then for us to be introspective about our motives and what 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 drives us, the desires of our hearts to make sure that we're not allowing these sins to to, to take up residence in our lives. Mm. But for the sake of our conversation today, I want to focus especially on the sin of slothfulness or laziness mm-hmm. and how how it is contrary to God's um, laws. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, based on that and thinking through this, would you say would you say it's accurate that la- laziness goes beyond just a lack of physical activity? Well, for the monastics, laziness wasn't just limited to kinesthetic laziness, a, a lack of using your muscles, a lack of using your body to to do physical work. It also included mental laziness. So if a person has a lack of interest in developing their mind, a lack of interest in thinking, a lack of interest in studying, a lack of interest in reflecting upon truth, that's also sloth. So you can have physical slothfulness and you can have mental slothfulness. Some people might be more apt to be to have a, a robust mind and a lazy body. Other people might be more apt to have a robust body and a lazy mind. And we sort of have created these extremes in our society. We have the intellectuals. And, and you know, the stereotype of the intellectual is this scrawny little man who, you know, with a, with a, a pencil-thin mustache and, um, you know, multiple layers of clothes on because he's, you know, he's always cold and he's, he's kind of a minuscule little individual and he spends all his time studying and reflecting and thinking great thoughts. But, you know, he doesn't have the, the physical capacity to, uh, 
you know, plant a shrub in his front yard. Um, so there's a hyper emphasis on the development of the mind and no emphasis on the use of the body. And then there's others that are, you know, pumping iron at the gym, but they, it doesn't seem like they've thought a thought in months. So slothfulness is not just a lack of kinesthetic, of physical exercise, but it's also a lack of using the mind, of, of thinking, of interacting with the world around you. And for some, this manifests itself. So if a person, for example, is guilty of slothfulness, whether it's kinesthetic slothfulness or intellectual slothfulness, you see people often sink into to moodiness and, and depression and indifference and self-fixation because that's not how God has designed us. God has actually designed human beings to work. He's designed us to work six days and rest on the seventh. We also know, Chris, from a counseling perspective, I'm sure you've experienced this when you meet people with addictive uh, behaviors and oftentimes those fall into the category of substance abuse. So they're abusing food or they're abusing drink or they're abusing tobacco or sexual addictions. They're, they're um, addicted to pornography, which is very, very common in, in Western culture. And in order to be an addict requires a fair bit of time. Mm -hmm. If you're a porn addict, it requires a fair bit of time to look around the internet or go to sex shops or whatever it might be. And we know of people that are that spend hours and hours and hours every week viewing pornography. And people that are addicted to tobacco, um, you know, every every 30 minutes they're out having a five-minute smoke break. And, you know, you add up the cumulative number of minutes they spend smoking tobacco and it, it eats up a lot of their lives or they're, they're addicted to to alcohol and they're making trips to the liquor store and they're spending time, you know, down in the juice. And the, in order for us, in order for a human being to, to give themselves to an addiction requires an expenditure, not only of your money mm -hmm. and your mind and your affections, but also your time. So laziness actually opens the door for those things. People that are busy, people that actually work six days and rest in the seventh, generally are more immune to physical addictions because they simply don't have time for it. Mm -hmm. They actually work. They actually work productively. They, they don't have time to be out for another smoke break, for you know guzzling down another 12-pack, for um, viewing viewing pornography. And we saw this during lockdown. Some people were locked down. We, we heard from some young men that in the absence of work, they were falling back into pornographic addictions, for mm -hmm. example. So laziness opens the door for, I guess what we could call anti-work, uh, activities that are destructive, the opposite of biblical stewardship that are, that are not creative, that are anti-creative. So argu arguably, as integrated beings, it's possible have sloth invade every area of your life. It, it can invade your your spiritual life, so you don't have time for the spiritual disciplines. You're just lazy. You're not reading. You're not fasting. You're not praying. You're not serving. You're not giving. Mm -hmm. It can invade your mental life. You're not thinking. You just you just don't want to think anymore. Like to think requires effort. To process truth requires effort, and a lot of folks don't seem to have an interest in that. 
physical discipline. We, we grow fat and lazy, and our bodies are all aging. That's part of the, of the curse. But the, the, the point I want to make is that we're integrated beings, and if we allow any area of our lives to drift into slothfulness, it necessarily and inevitably affects the other areas. So I, I have a really hard time believing that a morbidly obese preacher is actually walking close to Christ if he if he's filling his face with twice the number of calories that he needs. He's he's lacking the area of physical discipline. He's demonstrating a physical slothfulness that affects your spirituality, and your lack of spiritual disciplines affects your you know, your mental capacities and your mental capacities affect how you use your bodies and how, how you fend yourself, fend off evil. Um, so I, I just, I want to, I want to, I want our listeners to take note and, you know, remind, just to remind ourselves that God has called us to work. And when he calls us to work, it's not a bad thing. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He calls us to work for our own benefit. Working is a good thing. Working has not only monetary benefits to it, but it's part of our humanity. It protects us from, from addictive behaviors as a, as a benefit. It, it protects us from stinking thinking. It protects us if, we're, if, we are, uh, if we have a hard work ethic in the area of developing our intellect, it helps us to see lies quicker and to fend them off. So working is a good thing, and God has called us to work six days and rest on the seventh. He doesn't call us to work five days. He, he doesn't call us to work 200 days a year and then have you know 52 Saturdays and 52 Sundays and four weeks of vacation and just kind of lay around on beaches. He doesn't call us to retire. He doesn't call us to do these things, to retire from work. And so work, I'd like to see work, hard work, not workaholism because we do need that Sabbath-keeping mm-hmm. time, yeah. but hard work to become something that more and more Christians see as, as creative, as redemptive, as contributive, as a consistent part of, of their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, as you mentioned work, I'm just thinking, you know, some people love work and some people hate it. Some people have a love-hate relationship. We love it some days, hate it some days. And that kind of makes sense because work is affected by the fall. So how would you reconcile the fact that work is both part of God's design for us before sin entered the world, but is also affected by the curse? Okay, so this is really critical. I, I think that a lot of people have have a negative view of work. So it's negative. It's not positive. It's like, well, I, I got to go to work because mm-hmm. I have bills to pay. They have a n- negative view of work. And you'll hear even Christians talk about, you know, they're living for the weekends. They can't wait till the shift ends. They can't wait until it's Friday night. Uh, thank God it's Friday, you know, is a cultural saying. Monday is a drag. Wednesday is hump day. It's like exactly. the beginning of the week. Um, oh, I can't wait for my next vacation. I, I, I'm going to retire at 55. I'm going to retire at 60. This is We hear this rhetoric among Christians, and it's reflective of a deficient biblical theological worldview. Mm-hmm. So, if you go to the book of Genesis, we talk about creational theology. We're talking about what God has laid out for us in those early chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, prior to sin entering into the world, 
This is what God's word says. And this might surprise people because they have they may have this notion that prior to sin and the toil that comes into work because of sin, that Adam and Eve are just wandering through the garden, picking blueberries, you know, laying on the gra- grassy pastures, doing nothing, petting lions because they didn't bite back then. They might have this strange view, this otherworldly view of what their purpose was in creation. But here's what God's Word actually says. I'm going to take our readers, our listeners to Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So this is Genesis 2, 5. So it's just stating what and this is all in one day, but what the world was like before God created the first man. And then it says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. This is before sin. So this is this is re- very informative. When God created us in the garden, part of his purpose for us from the very beginning before sin entered into the world was to work to tend to the garden, to tame it, to exercise dominion over it. It's it's a little hard for us to imagine how do you tame something that's perfect? How do you how do you manage something that's perfect? There's no sin in the world. Well, a lack of order is not necessarily sinful. We think of a lack of order as being something that's sinful, but that's not true. In the garden, there was a need to tend to it perhaps to do things like move plants around, to work up the ground, to plant new seeds. To We don't really know exactly what that looked like. But work, we do know this without question, was part of God's design, part of our stewardship as human beings in the garden. So working, tending to, managing is God's design for humanity. This is really, really important to understand too. It wasn't followed with a paycheck. So a lot of folks go to work only because they're getting paid, and they will not work without a paycheck. We see this sometimes in Christian ministry. Oh, I'd like to work in ministry, but what's the paycheck? So we we just have this weird automatic connection. Work is for the purpose of a paycheck, whereas a Christian says, no, I work as unto the Lord. And some work is rewarded with a paycheck. And some work is rewarded simply with knowing that you've worked as unto the Lord. Yes. So paycheck and work, we need to disconnect the two. That's good. We need to disconnect the two in our in our, our our thinking. Bringing order to an untamed world was part of God's redemptive, creational demand and design for us. So this is why, and I'm going to step on some toes here. I I'm suspecting. This is why I'm opposed to the idea of retiring from work. I'm opposed to it. I think it's actually wrong. When people say, I'm going to retire from work, I would say that's not right. Now, I'm not opposed to people retiring from paid work, from retiring from a paycheck. If you have the means and you can work, but you don't require a paycheck because you're financially self-sufficient, hey, no problem. But this weird idea of retiring from work, it's its not biblical. There's nowhere in the Bible that mandates or encourages retirement. We are called to work six days and rest on the seventh. 
But we have this weird idea. Again, this is where ideas are imported into our thinking from the time that we're children, and we just assume that they're factual and assume that that's the way the world works, that we work 30 years or 40 years, and then we retire from work, and we just lay around for the next 20. We just drive to Florida. We wander through the mall. Uh, you know, We go to the park. We sit in coffee shops. We do that for the next... 20 or so years, well, that's a violation of God's design for humanity. Again, there's nothing wrong with, quote unquote, retiring from a paycheck, but it is not acceptable for us to retire from work. It's not des- it is not God's design for any man or woman to ever quit working. Now, if you're physically disabled and you can't physically work, we get it. But it is not God's design for us to quit working, even if you don't need the money. Because you don't, you don't, a biblical worldview doesn't say work for the money. You work as unto the Lord. So it's like, well, I don't, I don't need a paycheck anymore. Okay, you can drop the paycheck, but find a way to work. Disconnect money, i.e., the paycheck, from work. If you plan to retire from a paycheck, and from a from a job that you've worked at for 30 or 40 years because there's a paycheck attack attached, figure out what you're going to do next. Serve at your church. Serve in a charity. Take care of your grandchildren. Babysit someone's children for them. Maybe they have a need to work for a paycheck. But six days of your life should be oriented towards work, and one day of your life should be oriented to rest and that ends when you die. Hmm. So this weird idea of guys in their 40s, 50s, 60s retiring and having no schedule and no real responsibilities and piddling away their time, throwing a few hours down here and there, pulling weeds in the garden, but essentially having no schedule, it's not God's plan for you. And it's dangerous. In fact, you can Google this. There are numerous studies, numerous studies in various countries around the world that show that retiring from work young leads to an earlier death. Mm-hmm. Now, anecdotally, we've all seen this, but there's actually studies out. And the reason for this is often because it leads to cognitive decline. It leads to cognitive decline. It leads to a lack of purpose. Like we, we're, we aren't always aware of how the stress and responsibility of work actually keeps us on our toes, keeps us thinking. You and I know this, Chris, you're, you're a hands-on guy, I'm a hands-on guy, we like to work with our hands. But pastoral ministry is intellectually very rigorous, and at times it can be very exhausting when you're thinking, you're trying to figure out how to respond to a church discipline situation or how to explain a you know, a concept. I mean, even as we sit across the table here and we we discuss truths, I usually leave here feeling a little tired mm-hmm. <laughs> because you've been thinking. You're, you're, you're on your toes. People are listening to what you're saying. You're trying to string your words together in some um, coherent way. But that's good because it keeps you sharp. When you read, you know, they often say readers are leaders. When you read, when you digest truth, when you're you're thinking through concepts, when you're articulating concepts, it's good for you. When you have that stress of being accountable to your boss or being responsible for your employees, um, there's a redemptive value in that. It, ke- it keeps us sharp. And I've seen a lot of men 
It's like, I just want to retire, you know, freedom 55. Man, dude, you can, you could be around for another 30 years. Mm-hmm. And your mind is going to start to deteriorate if you aren't if you don't hold yourself accountable to to a rigorous schedule. Mm-hmm. So I get it. Uh, you know, work work is difficult. Work is challenging in our flesh because we're selfish. We may want to withdraw from it. Um, and then there's others that probably love it to the point that it's like they're idle and they did they don't take any Sabbath rest, which needs to be repented of. But there is a balance. There, work is difficult, but at the same time, it is part of God's creational design for us till death. Mm-hmm. One one thing that just interestingly popped into my mind as you were saying, we don't work for a paycheck. I think in my conversations with my wife, she has learned this lesson a lot quicker because raising children, oh, yeah. attending to the home doesn't bring a paycheck. And she's wrestled with that where I'm like, well, it's still important, you know, it's it's still, but yeah, I don't work for a paycheck either. And obviously in ministry, we've kind of built that mindset, but uh, I think that's a, just a, it's an encouragement, right? We aren't to work for the paycheck and that's not the measure of whether your work is meaningful or not. But right? from what you've told me, my understanding is that Julianne spends all the money. She's listening. We love you, Julianne. <laughs> she'll listen to this and know that is not true. <laughs> that's a good point because my wife, So she, I mean, we met in school, um, but when we were finished school, she worked for a few years before we started having children. And once all the children were well into school, she started working outside the home part-time and now works full-time now in our church, which is is great. But, I mean, she she felt like she was working sun up to sundown. We had five little kids in six and a half years and, you know, all the work and effort and laundry. And, you know, there's a lot of responsibility attached to to being a mom. And that's a great example of where that's redemptive, that's valuable. Mm-hmm. In fact, Chris, it's a sad thing that culture has told many young women that that's actually not valuable. You should have a career. Your career is you got to go and become whatever, a teacher, a professor, a firefighter, whatever, and you have to get a paycheck and if you don't do that, you're you know, you're you're a lesser woman. And we want to we want to combat that lie because one of the most beautiful things that a woman can do is, especially when the kids are young, is to dedicate herself full time to working to to raising and nurturing the children. And the man obviously is going to have a part in that, but the unique difference is that men can't have children and women can. can. And we can't breastfeed children, but I mean, we can change diapers and train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but it's our primary responsibility to to provide for our families. He who does not provide for his own, the Bible says, is worse than an infidel. So I, I want women to feel that there is value in staying home and raising their children. And I, I am not opposed to women working outside the home. I think when I was young, we almost had this idea in our church that, that was a bad thing, that women should stay home, even after the kids are grown and have started their own families, a woman's place is in the home. Read Proverbs 31. I mean, that woman there, the idealized uh, biblical woman, is involved in commerce, mm-hmm. you know, buying and selling and trading. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with a woman working outside the home. And I would challenge anybody to prove otherwise. There's nothing wrong with a woman working, quote unquote, outside the home or in commerce or being an entrepreneur. 
But there is an, a logical period of time during those prime childbearing years where one of the biggest blessings uh, um, that a mother can give to her her children is to spend the lion's share of her time focusing her attention on them. And we should encourage that and we should speak well of that even if there's no paycheck involved. Likewise, um, when I, I think... I think that the mindset, so we used to say it this way, but I've sort of changed the way I frame this up. I've said, you know, in, in, in secular employment, you go to work to get a paycheck. Hmm. And in Christian employment, you go to work and the paycheck follows. You don't go to pursue the paycheck, but you ask the paycheck comes behind you to support you. But from a Christian perspective, that mindset should be applied to both. Yep. So if the Lord calls you to be a firefighter, it better be your calling. And you need to fight fires as unto the Lord. And one of the side benefits is that you get a paycheck. If you're a lawyer, you should serve as a lawyer as unto the Lord. And one of the side benefits is you get a paycheck. If you're a factory worker, you should feel that's your calling, that the Lord has called me to work with my hands, to build, to manufacture, to create. And the paycheck comes comes kind of after me. So from a Christian perspective, it's it's very exhausting to go to work for the sake of the paycheck, mm-hmm. but it's freeing and redemptive, and we're able to see how the Lord can use us in all vocations. There's no sacred-secular divide. All vocations are as unto the Lord. If you are a painter, you should paint as unto the Lord. If you're a plumber, you should plumb as unto the Lord. Like, put excellence in your work, be creative, be fair with your customers, look for opportunities to have conversations. And obviously, we live in a world where money is required for most people, unless you're independently wealthy. So you do that as unto the Lord. If you sell insurance, sell insurance as unto the Lord. If you're a banker, bank as unto the Lord. All all of our vocations are spiritual vocations in that respect. And again, there, there may come a time when, because your body is aging, or you, you don't, you know, you want a, a change of pace where you sell a business, you change careers, you quote unquote retire from the paycheck. There's nothing wrong with that, but all of us are called to work until death, six days a week. It doesn't say how many hours a day, you know, but presumably several hours a day would be involved in that. And in and of itself, that mindset of working is an on, uh, honorable to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just want to kind of emphasize that. So thanks for sort of bringing that that up. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the effect of sin on the fall. I'm going to read a passage of scripture here from Genesis 3. It says in the curse section, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So help us re- reconcile pre-fall work for, with post-fall work. Okay. So in the opening chapters of Genesis, we have several mandates that fall under the broader mandate of being a dominion steward, to, to steward the world on, on God's behalf as his co-regent, if you will. And those mandates involve uh, things like working, 
uh, marrying, uh, raising children, leaving, leaving and cleaving, and worshiping. So who among us would say, you know what? Because of the fall, marriage is entirely a bad thing. Because of the fall, having kids is entirely a bad thing. Because of the fall, worship is entirely a bad thing. Nobody would say that. They would say, yeah, no marriage is perfect this side of the fall. No child is perfect this side of the fall. We're never, we're always struggling to be better in worship and we're often distracted and guilty of idolatry. I think most Christians would agree with me that they see those things as being affected and marred by sin, but they don't see them as bad. But for some reason, when it comes to work, I think subtly it's like bad. Mm. It's all bad. And and the way I think about this is that everything is marred by sin. Everything in creation is marred by sin. Creation groans, we learn in Romans chapter 8, because of sin. But the mandates that God gave us prior to the fall have not been canceled. We still work. We still marry. We still have children. We still worship. We still pursue those creational mandates. Does sin affect our dominion over these things? Yes. Sin affects our dominion over marriage, children. I mean, even eating. Mm -hmm. In Genesis chapter um, uh, 2, God gives them permission to eat from the trees in the garden, but not the one tree lest you die. So eating is a good thing, but eating can lead to gluttony. So post-fall, a good thing, eating, can now become gluttony. Mm-hmm. Pre-fall, marriage is a good thing, but post-fall, it can create conflict and abuse and disrespect between a husband and wife, and on and on and on. But we still pursue these mandates. We know that, but for some reason, we don't have the same mindset when it comes to work, and we need to change our mindset. Work is not a negative thing. Is it affected by sin? Yes. Are we going to have to toil and other things we have to do that are not fun? Yes. There's a lot of jobs that aren't fun. There's a lot of jobs that are hard work. Like what parent says, I want to have children because I just love the idea of changing poopy diapers. Wow, that's what I'm looking forward to. No, we we love raising our children, but that's an aspect we don't really look forward to. Mm-hmm. We love seeing our children mature. You know, they be, they go through the primary years, they become teenagers, like, wow, they're starting to show some independence. But we don't like teenage rebellion, right? We don't like that. Um, we like to, to eat, but there's some things we don't really like to eat, even though they're good for us. And there's things we might like to eat that are bad for us that we shouldn't eat or we shouldn't eat in excess. So in all of these things, what we're trying to do is not, we don't want to throw work out. We want to redeem it. Through Christ, each of these mandates, whether it's marriage, eating, having children, worshiping, or working, each of these mandates is an opportunity for us to demonstrate God's redemptive plan upon a broken world and at the same time to exercise the kind of dominion that we should have exercised in the beginning over the planet around us. So when you go out, I have this bush line behind my property, and it kind of got overgrown with all these wild grapes. And years ago, someone planted these big old ugly thorn trees back there. So I've been in there with my tractor. I've been ripping out all these grapevines, and I burned a pile 
of vines and um, branches that I'd pulled out about two months ago. Chris, this pile was, if you put it all together, was about 60 feet long. Oh, wow. 15 <laughs> feet wide and six feet high. And I, in piles, I was, I was burning it this, this week. And uh, most people will never notice that. If you come to my house, you're probably not going to say, oh, Aaron, great job cleaning up your wood line. Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure my wife would notice. I haven't taken her out there and show it, right? Yeah. But it's part of my stewardship. There's, there's, I didn't get paid for it, mm-hmm. but it was, there was something in me. It's like, this needs to be tended to. This is becoming overgrown. This is becoming unusable. This is becoming hideous. Mm-hmm. This is becoming ugly. So we go out there and we, we tend to creation, the wildness of creation. We subdue it as unto the Lord. And, and I find joy in that. Mm-hmm. Like even if no one notices, I find joy in pulling those grapevines out of the tree. I find joy in cutting down a thorn bush. I find joy in watching it burn. <laughs> <laughs> it looks good at the end. Yeah. And I think God's created that to be a, a yeah, self, um, like, like gratifying thing. Yeah, right? there's beauty to that. I mean, you, you know, um, you know, as a guy that's good at your when you renovate, mm-hmm. um, people see the final project, but they don't know the blood, sweat, and tears that necessarily went in the dust you breathed in, the hard work, yeah. the cuts on the hands, the the frustration that's that's attached to that. But you do it as unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I'll just emphasize this again. Okay, When it comes to work, I, I really think we've made an error in separating intellectual work from physical work, where we have classes of people that dedicate all their time to intellectual work and a different class of people that dedicates all their time to physical work. Now, I totally get it. Some people are more intellectually inclined. Some people are more physically inclined. But if you if you look at the Word of God, you look, look at Paul. Mm-hmm. Paul was an intellectual, but he was also sewing tents, running a needle through canvas. Solomon was an intellectual, but we're told in 1 Kings that he studied music, he wrote music, he studied trees, he studied herbs, the hyssop that grows on the wall, he studied animal husbandry, he studied the fish, he studied the birds. People would come to this guy, and he could pretty much lecture on any subject. And I would like to see more people become balanced in this area. So, some have a greater propensity in one area than the other, but like hoeing, pulling weeds, turning soil, rolling rocks away, along with reading, thinking, contemplating, should be part of every Christian's life on some level. You may be better at one than the other, I get it. But sadly, many intellectuals have no ability to use their physical bodies for physical work, even though God has given them physical bodies. I don't know, maybe they think they just have a, they're just a big brain rolling around. But God's given you hands and feet, and you can use those for redemptive purposes for work. And then physical workers sometimes fall into the trap of not thinking. You know, you got this stereotypical guy that's really good at building stuff, but he doesn't—he doesn't think about anything. He just, mm-hmm. duh, you know, yeah. doesn't think about things. And then you meet other people that are really good with their hands, but they have a rigorous mind. And and. It seems to me that as we look at work in the scriptures that we should be pursuing both of these. Now, here's the key qualifier, to our individual maximum capacity. Mm -hmm. Some people are going to be more bent in one area than the other. But a fully lived human life is one that engages in both intellectual and physical work. 
So, you know, maybe you've fallen into the trap of pouring all your time into the intellectual pursuits and never using your body. I mean, you're, you may go to the gym, but maybe you need to start gardening because gym life, you know, again, no offense, but gym life is artificial work. It's like I, I ate too many calories, so I got to like artificially push on something or run on a treadmill or pick something up to burn calories or to build muscle. Um, and there's benefits that I'm not opposed to. I've done a little bit of it myself, but gardening is a way of developing your body. And there's also redemptive value. You get carrots out of it at the end of the day. Hmm. Building something's redemptive. You save money paying someone to build your shed for you. So we can, we want to encourage people to be, be like Paul, a, a great thinker and a writer and also a tent maker. But again, how many ivory tower academics could thread one of Paul's needles? Hmm. Very few because we've created this false dichotomy between the intellectual class and the quote-unquote working class. Again, Solomon was skilled at these things, and it's, it's reflected in the Proverbs. The Proverbs speak redemptively of work, and, when, and they speak ill of slothfulness and sluggardliness, and as Solomon, this wise intellectual giant, passes truth on to the next generation from his life experience, Many times he's drawing from his observations of nature, like consider the ant, <laughs> you sluggard. <laughs> and, and there's some beauty in that. It sh- I think even in preaching, if you're a preacher and the sum total of your preaching capacity boils down to parsing Greek and Hebrew words in front of people and giving historical anecdotes, but you don't show that you actually know how to do anything with your body, I think you lose a portion of your audience that is that wants to see that you live in the real world, that wants to see that you observe the life of the ant or that you know what a two by four is or a cinder block is. Mm-hmm. There, there's something there's something enriching and, and balanced about that kind of a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Proverbs is like filled obviously with things yep. that speak about work, slothfulness and rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you mentioned several of them. Can you, can you walk through a few passages that maybe stick out to you? Yeah. Well, work is is beneficial. There's many reasons why the Proverbs speak positively of work. It's beneficial because, I mean, you gain material supplies through your work, which we, we do need in a material world. Proverbs 13.4 says, the soul of the sluggard. I love that word, the sluggard. You think of a <laughs> one of those slimy slugs that crawls across, you know, the, the, the wet lawn. This is, this is very slow, right? It's like, ew, what is this thing? It's that kind of a um, an, an image, a kind of a grotesque, like ew, kind of an image that he applies to a lazy person. Mm-hmm. Uh, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. So there's a there's a connection there between diligence, work, and supply. Now, unfortunately, even though the Bible says. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. We have a lot of people that don't work but still want to eat. In fact, let me just address this issue for a moment. Again, I I can only step on so many toes in one podcast, but I'll step (laughs) on some more. I often have Christians ask me about homelessness. Like, what do we do as a church about homelessness? And I'm not trying to be cold-hearted here. I do think on rare occasion in our country, there are people that are unfortunately homeless that need to be helped. But I would, I'm just going to say what most of us know. Most people are homeless because they want to be homeless. 
They're homeless because they don't want to work. You see, even in our own city, able-bodied men standing at the foot of overpasses, big guys, 250 pound, 230 pound, six foot two men standing there with a big sign, out of work, you pull up, you roll down your window. I've seen this happen, I've done it. Hey, I just saw a help wanted sign down the street, you should check it out. They're not interested. Many of them are addicted to substances. Mm -hmm. They're not interested in overcoming that. They're literally living in the moment. They're not interested in working, but they wanna eat. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians have this weird, naive notion that somehow it's our responsibility to provide money and food to able-bodied people who can work, and it's not, and we shouldn't be doing it. We shouldn't be doing it. The quickest way to end homelessness is let people get very, 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 very hungry, and they will go to work. Mm -hmm. They will stop buying drugs. I mean, at the end of the day, if you keep funneling money into them so they can buy drugs or cigarettes or whatever it is, and they don't want to work, you're facilitating the destruction of their lives and their disobedience against God. Now, again, having grown up in social housing for a period of time, I know that there's some people that are legitimately, they've been thrown out of work. You know, we mm -hmm. saw this during the lockdowns, people yep. that lost their jobs because these ridiculous government mandates that were forbidden from working, we had to help them financially and we did to the best of our ability. But most people, and you talk to social workers about this, and again, most yep. people aren't bold enough to say it. It's awkward to say. Most people in our country are homeless because they want to be homeless. That's mm -hmm. the natural outcome of bad choices. They don't want to work, period. We have thousands and thousands of people who come primarily from the Caribbean and Mexico to work in the greenhouse industry in our county every year. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them. And they come into those greenhouses and they work six days a week and they rest on the seventh. And you ask greenhouse owners, why, why are we importing so many people when there's homelessness? Because they don't want to work. Yep. There's employment everywhere. You may not be, uh, you know, your first job isn't going to necessarily be 75 grand a year, benefits, pension plan, but it's, it's more than you're getting when you're getting nothing. Mm -hmm. So I, I really think we need to be, we need to be soft hearted towards people but we live in this weird culture, this socialistic, entitled culture that's destroying our economy, that's stealing money from God's purses. Because when you're giving money that the Lord has entrusted to you to someone who doesn't deserve it and doesn't need it and shouldn't have it, you're taking money from someone that the Lord's going to bring into your life that does need it. There, there's plenty of single moms that have been abandoned by some delinquent husband that are should be legitimate recipients of money from God's people. Mm -hmm. There's people that have severe physical disablements or have lost their jobs that are that we can help. But we shouldn't be helping able-bodied people who are content to live in a state of perpetual slothfulness and somehow airbrush that to look like, well, that's what Jesus would do. What would Jesus do? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus wouldn't do. He wouldn't be giving money. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't be giving food to able-bodied men who should be working. In fact, taking it to the next level, if you read the pastoral epistles, it even says that women who are widows don't qualify for help from the church if they're under 60. Think about that. How many people have read that? Mm-hmm. Like add that to your your socialistic worldview. Yeah. 
So the idea is, is if you're if you're under 60, the solution, even if you've lost your husband, is to I hate to say it, get a job. Yeah. Right? So if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat, the Bible says. He who does not provide for his own is um, you know, worse than than an, than an, an infidel, the Bible says. So that's that's a benefit. When we work, we the natural outcome is we grow in our riches. Mm-hmm. Just to tag, tag on to that, I had the opportunity several years back, um, there was a guy panhandling on the street near our house. And so I invited him to come back to our house to work because I had a, a job to do in the backyard. Oh, okay. It was very enlightening because through the conversation found out he actually wanted to be homeless. He actually, for the majority of the time, did not work. But it's interesting, just as you expose yourself to those things, the most loving thing isn't to enable bad behavior. The most loving thing is to well, you want to offer them a job? Sure, offer them a job and see how that goes. Um, but it is, yeah, it's, it's it's a very, true love looks different than what many people put it out to be. Yeah, like that that idea of tough love. So think about this with your with your children. If if my kid, you know, when they were younger, if I said, you got to clean your room, I don't want to. I wouldn't say, okay, okay, I'll, I'll clean your room for you. I'd say, get your butt in there and clean your room. Or you're not going to get dessert or whatever the punishment yeah. might be, right? That's how we train children. We don't just if you if you want to meet uh, if you want to guarantee that your your kid goes up to be a brat and a non-contributing member to society, do everything for them, mm-hmm. do their homework, uh, fight all their battles, never have any requirements for them. Don't let them ever work a part-time job. You know, keep them in school till they're 25, because after all, that's how you develop a good work ethic tongue-in-cheek sarcasm there, yep. you're, you're pretty much going to guarantee at the end of the day you're going to have a big loser on your hands. But the, the people that actually contribute to society get married young, start businesses, serve in their church are those that have been taught a good work ethic, among other things. Mm-hmm. They haven't been babied. You baby babies. Yeah, you it's don't, disrespectful, you don't, really. You don't baby teenagers. You don't baby young adults. Um, so that's something that, you know, parents need to think about through work. We make money. The Proverbs says in Proverbs 10, four, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Again, we have this entitlement culture where I, I have a good friend that, um, is pretty economically savvy. And I, I love hearing him speak and chat with them because there's so little awareness of how economics actually work in the modern Western world. It's ridiculous. Like we have politicians giving people money to to supposedly fix inflation or giving people money to buy groceries or giving people money to get them to vote for them. And the, the average citizen doesn't seem to be aware of the fact that the money you're they're giving you is actually money they've already taken from you and then taken their cut from it and they're trying to give it back to you and get thanked and get credit for it it's ridiculous mm-hmm. we need smaller this isn't a people are like, well this is like some sort of a you know republican podcast or conservative podcast no it's just basic common sense it's basic bible it's basic economics it's not the job of the government to provide your health care it's not the job of the government to educate your children 
It's not the job of the government to provide you with grocery rebates. Like what part of reality are you not locking into? Mm-hmm. And if the government butts out of our lives and tends to public justice and not everything else they've taken on, you will have more money in your pocket. I even heard like after World War II, Germany, because you know they had to pay reparations and all that because of all their atrocious conduct, that the German government basically threw out bureaucracy and it supercharged their economy and, and hmm. brought them back in short order. Because if you want to hinder business, what you want to do is you want to you want to have like 55 documents you got to sign, four licenses, five certifications, endless bureaucracy, endless phone calls. We live in a bureaucratic world. So for example, I had to pay um, a, uh, a, a bill at my bank recently. And I, I called the bank. I just had a simple question. Okay, just a simple question to your policy. Do I need to bring my wife along to pay this bill? I got to pay a bill for her bill for me. That's all, simple, simple question. I was like 17, 18 minutes on the phone as they were trying to look it up. Finally, I just said to the lady, like, I'm just going to go to the bank. It's actually a shorter trip for me to go to the bank. Yeah. Endless bureaucracy. Can I have your number? Can you verify your address? You don't even need to know who I am. Do I, when I, when an individual, regardless of their name, goes into a bank to pay a bill, can they pay it for someone else? Does the person need to be absent? Yes. Can the person be absent? Yes or no? It's a policy question. It's not about me. It's not specific to my life. You don't need to ask me all my information. What's the yeah. name of your first dog? How many gerbils <laughs> have you owned? You know, what, what's the name of your third child? What's your middle initial? Leave me alone. I'm just asking a simple question. I want to pay a bill for myself and for my wife. Can I do that? Yes or no? We flew to England. But the backstory is, and this is more about corporate bureaucracy, but it's because we live in a culture of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. We planned on going at the beginning of the pandemic in April of 2020. It was canceled. They wouldn't give us our money back. So the, the, the airline kept our money, gave us a quote-unquote credit, even though they jacked the prices up by two and a half times by the time we actually bought our tickets. Without a word of a lie, my wife probably spent in the vicinity of 15 to 20 hours on the phone just trying to get the number, some certificate number, so we could get our credit for the airfare that we paid three and a half years ago and applied to this recent trip. Basically a half week's worth of work. No, spread over several months, back and forth, bureaucracy. Corporations are bogged down with bureaucracy. They're nightmares to work with. You feel like you're looking into the eyes of the Borg, like no one's even responsible for it. And it's the same with the government, the bureaucracy, the amount of time the average human being has to spend filling out paperwork and how many cards do we have in our you know, wallets for this place and that place. It's, it's, it's defl- it deflates economies. It, it de-incentivizes work. And mm-hmm. it's it's a huge, huge um, problem. But I, I'm saying all that just to, to, to get back to the point of people feel so entitled to everyone else's money. It's like somehow if you're a wealthy business owner who's worked your butt off in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and now you, you have a lot of money, you somehow owe that to some bum on the street that doesn't want to work. Mm-hmm. And then we even within the Christian church, we have these social justice warriors preaching sermons, chastising the wealthy. Like, give your head a shake. Read your Bible, man. 
if you work, you're going to benefit from your work and to different degrees. Now, you don't take any of it with you, but you obviously want to steward it unto the Lord. Proverbs 21, 25 says, the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. So think about that. I don't want to work. It's too hard. You're killing yourself. Mm -hmm. Oh, but it hurts my back. You're killing yourself. The couch potatoes don't live long. Lazy bums don't live long. If you're tempted to sleep too much, it says in Proverbs 20, verse 13, love not sleep, lest you come to poverty, open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. You know that old statement, the early bird gets the worm? Mm -hmm. It's true. But I don't need the money, so I sleep in all the time. Again, that's an, that's bad logic. Okay, If you're independently wealthy and you don't need to work, and so you decide to sleep in all the time and you don't work, work anyway for a charity. Work and give your money to someone who does need it. How many people would actually go to work full-time to generate income to feed the truly poor and impoverished among us? Mm. Like that, that would show you actually get it, mm -hmm. right? That would show that you, you actually understand the nature of Christian finances. And of course, Chris, when we go to the New Testament, um, you know, we're taught in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not mm -hmm. busy at work. You'd almost think he'd say, yeah, I heard that some among you are gossiping. Mm -hmm. Or some among you are murderers, or some among you are adulterers, but he actually targets work here. It's a sin. I've heard that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, which tends to be, we fill our time with something. So just like I said earlier, if you don't work, you're going to fill your time with porn, you're going to fill your time with tobacco, you're going to fill your time with food, you're going to fill your time with, with um, uh, alcohol, or you're going to fill your time with sitting around, criticizing everyone, gossiping, idle chatter, wasting your life, wasting your life. So he goes on to say, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord, Jesus Christ, to do their work quietly and earn their own living. And then finally, Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone mm -hmm. in need. Part of the reason why we work is for the sake of future generations. The righteous man saves up an inheritance for his children. Part of the reason why we work is to support our churches. Part of the reason why we work is to support Christian charities. And part of the reason why we work is to pay legitimate taxes. Mm -hmm. So we don't just work for ourselves. You don't get to keep all your money, okay? You're driving on roads. You're being protected by police. You're being tended to by whoever. It's legitimate for us to be paying taxes to support that. Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, yep. taxes have gone a little bit crazy. The only thing we can't work for is our salvation. But we work for the one that secures our salvation mm -hmm. as a means of honoring him, and we should. We Christ, Every Christian, every single Christian under the sound of my voice, should be the most diligent, respected employer or employee that the people around him or her could possibly think of. Christians should never be out of work. We should be the hardest working, mm -hmm. you know, the, the first at work, the last to leave kind of thing. People who work as unto the Lord, people who work with joy, people who um, aren't on the take people who are giving, not people who steal, not people who expect a handout, not people that assume 
mommy and daddy are going to supply all my needs. Uh, that that old Protestant work ethic is something I'd like to see us big bring back, and it's reflective of a robust biblical theology of work, and it denounces slothfulness and sluggardliness and laziness. Hmm. Yeah, so we've identified several causes of laziness there, and I'm just wondering before we go, is there any more that you want to call out or identify? Well, I want people to think of this in this way. Um, when we refuse to work, when we grow lazy, what we're actually demonstrating is a bit of indifference toward the things of God. God has placed us here for a reason. And if you're a person, let's say you're 60 years old and you've retired from a paycheck and the Lord's going to give you another 20, 25 years, and you're doing nothing with your time, what does that say about your awareness of God's work in the world? What does that say about your indifference towards the gift of life that God has given to you? What does that say about your indifference toward the gift of steward, the stewardship that God has given you with your money? You are, you are bought with a price. And part of obeying the Lord Jesus and following his plan for our lives is to be aware, to have our antennas up, to be aware of what God is doing in the world and to constantly be looking for places where we can plug in and serve his purposes. I want to say this. Some listening might be workaholics working seven days a week. That's a sin. We are called to, to observe the Sabbath. Now, the Christian Sabbath, we could talk about this in another podcast, is Sunday. It's not Saturday. There's plenty of reasons for that. But even if you're a strict Sabbatarian, it has to be Saturday. It has to be the last day of the week. Okay, I think there's some theological problems with that, but whatever. We are called, the pattern is, work six days and rest on the seventh. Does that mean that there's not exceptions to it? There's an emergency, someone dies? Yeah, I get it. But the pattern is, mm -hmm. the pattern is not working 365 and a quarter days a year. That's right. The pattern is working six days and resting on the seventh. Uh, accountability. If you don't work and you're lazy, uh, one of the reasons, one of the causes for it is, um, so we're talking about causes of laziness. Um, Maybe just let me let me backtrack and add one more thought here. Sometimes people are lazy because they aren't Sabbath keeping. Mm -hmm. They they burn themselves out when they're young. They burn the candle at both ends. They don't get into the habit of six days on, one day off. They work seven, 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 and they sort of run out of steam and energy, and it it doesn't allow their bodies and minds to be rejuvenated so they can get back to work. So their productivity actually drops. If you want to be productive. Take a day off yep. every week. Take a day off. That will actually increase your productivity and your enjoyment of life. A lack of accountability, you know, again, nothing wrong with working at home, but there's more distractions than if you're in a cubicle and your boss is looking over your shoulder. Uh, if you're on a line and you're watching a clock. So even if you're self-motivated, whether you're in ministry, hey, I think a lot of pastors work too much. And I also know a lot of pastors that are just flat out lazy bums. They just don't really seem to, you know, they drift into the office midday. They drift out early afternoon. They're out in the boat. They're bumping from house to house looking for a donut and coffee. Like they're not, they're not rigorous men. And I, I have no problem if, you know, if, if you have an agreement with your church where you work part-time or obviously in ministry there's flex hours because thing you feel like you're on duty seven days a week and there's a lot of evening work and all that sort of stuff. But keep yourself accountable. Uh, make sure you, make sure you are accountable. Laziness is also a, a result of a selfish desire to just tend to you, just a fixation on yourself. 
I really want people to think about this. We spend so much time consciously and subconsciously Mm -hmm. thinking about me, myself, and I. And we need to overcome that with the power of Christ and think about other people and serve other people. And like your dear wife and mine, serving other people with no immediate benefit to yourself, serving your children. People can be distracted and overstimulated. I've had several people say to me, and I think we've all experienced this, that, so let's suppose we we work in a factory and then we come home and we're like, I need some downtime, so I'm gonna play this hopped up video game or I need some downtime, so I'm gonna spend two hours on social media um, looking at endless news articles and pictures and all the emotions attached to all the news stories coming out. And you can live in a world where you're so overstimulated you wear yourself out. You're like distracted. Mm-hmm. You're totally. Some people have a trouble working. They, they have like an attention span problem. When we were young boys generally have this. So when, mm-hmm. after I grew up, it was very common for the next generation to be diagnosed with ADHD. And, you know, maybe there's some legitimacy to that. I'm not really going to comment on it. But I can tell you this, Chris, if I, if I, um, if, if teachers and counselors observed little Aaron Rock in the 70s in class, they'd probably say, yeah, he's got ADHD. Let's put him on some Ritalin. Because young boys generally aren't real good at sitting in a classroom for six or seven hours being lectured at. You know, I was thinking about, climbing trees and building a raft and fishing and, you know, how I could get my hands on a root beer or whatever. There, There is a, a, a times in life, depending on your maturity, where you're easily distracted. And over time, you learn to be more focused. You learn to be more focused. But we have a lot of adults that have a, almost a form of ADHD. They can't focus on a task. They can't seem to accomplish anything. Even around their property, there's endless tasks that have never been finished. And you look at you look at their life, and you say, "Do you ever think it's because you ne- you never really rest? Like you're always overstimulated. Like social media can be a huge ministry opportunity and a massive distraction that yeah. just drains countless hours." I would dare say, if I were to guess, I would say there's a majority of people in the world today, in the younger generation, and in the middle aged generation, that probably are spending upwards of 20 to 25 hours a week online. And that's 20 to 25 hours a week of non-productivity. I mean, you may be more aware of every conspiracy theory and every move from the government, but sometimes we just need to shut it off yep. and and be able to rest our minds and we become more, more productive. And then finally, I would say procrastination. You know, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. There's no real rush attached, and we just never get around to it. So that's something we need to identify as well. Those are some causes that I think slow people down from working hard. And Chris, I'll just say finally, there's consequences to this. Physical demise, your body starts to deteriorate if you're not using it. I find that uh, when I'm in my office doing office work, sometimes I just got to get up and go for a walk. Or when I go home, I'm like, I, I got to do some physical labor. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just not designed to sit in a chair 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. Nobody is. So physical um, demise can be a, a consequence of a lack of physical labor. Wasting your life. You get one life, man. Mm-hmm. Lady, you get one <laughs> life. One life. You want to waste it? You get about 70 years, plus or minus. You're going to waste your life? 
But laziness is kind of like sexual sin. It appears attractive. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't want to work. It's too hard. I don't want to put in the overtime. I don't want to dig the garden. I'll just hire it. I don't want to rake leaves. I'll hire someone for it. I don't want to clean my house. I mean, I bought too big of a house anyway, but I can't clean it. So I'm just going to hire that out. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I just want to be doted on. I, you know, I want my husband to do the work. I don't want to work. I just want to stay at home all the time, or I want to go on endless vacations, or I want to retire at 55, or whatever it might be. It seems attractive. But once you participated in it, participate in that kind of laziness and slothfulness, it just leaves you hollow. And if you're sensitive to the work of the Spirit in your life, everyone knows when they're being lazy. Mm-hmm. And it's hollow and it's empty, but there's something beautiful and valuable about being productive and tending to creation and thinking deeply and processing situations and giving yourself to hard work. There's something beneficial about that, and we should hunger and thirst after it. That's part of what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's it's righteous to hunger and thirst after work as unto the Lord. Well said. Well, thank you, Aaron. Appreciate that podcast. Uh, and I think our listeners will be blessed by that. As a reminder to our listeners, you can find this podcast over on the pursuitofglory.org website, Aaron's personal blog, as well as over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And we hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.